Welcome to Bible Insights with Wayne Conrad. God's Word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Today's topic, telling the story, the first of several parts. How do you begin to tell the story, the narrative of Jesus of Nazareth, son of Mary, the Messiah? We have four written narratives of the actions and teachings of Jesus culminating in his suffering, death, burial, and resurrection ascension. Each one is written by a disciple of Jesus. Two are apostles who accompanied Jesus for three years, namely Matthew and John, and the two others are written by close associates of apostles. Mark writes basically the memoirs of Peter, and Luke, who traveled with Paul, did historical research to compile his gospel account. These four present Jesus in the days of his flesh among people. And we do have one who tells the story of Jesus' current ministry in heaven, namely the author of Hebrews. It's instructive to see how each begins to tell the story of Jesus. Now, the story of Jesus is actual interpreted facts which have the power when received by faith to connect people savingly to God. We refer to this as the gospel. Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's begin with Matthew. Matthew, the son of Levi, is a directly called apostle. And he begins to tell the story of Jesus by giving a purposely constructed genealogy tracing Jesus' family line to the God-called patriarch Abraham and the God-chosen King David. Now, what is the significance of this? Well, Matthew is pointing to Jesus as a fulfillment of the covenant promises made to Abraham and later to David. First, the Abrahamic covenant or promise. Genesis 15, 4 and following in the New American Standard Bible. God spoke to Abraham, One who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he, that is Abraham, believed in Yahweh. And he, that is God, reckoned it to him as righteousness. So we can read that. Then Abraham believed in Yahweh, and Yahweh reckoned it to Abraham as righteousness. And Genesis 17 repeats the covenant promise again. This is the Holman Christian standard. Then Abram fell face down, and God spoke with him. As for me, my covenant is with you. You will become the father of many nations. Your name will no longer be Abram, but you, your name will be Abraham, for I have made you the father of many nations. I will make you extremely fruitful and will make nations and kings from, come from you. I will keep my covenant between me and you and your future offspring throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant to be your God and the God of your offspring after you. And to you... 
and your future offspring, I will give the land where you are residing, all the land of Canaan, as an eternal possession, and I will be their God. Now, Paul gives us the New Testament understanding of these covenants in Galatians 3, verse 16. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So though the text speaks of Abraham, Abraham's offsprings, which will be his natural offspring, his ethnic offspring, his spiritual offspring, what is primarily in focus is his unique offspring, the seed, Messiah, Christ Jesus. So Abraham functions as a model and he functions as this, this one in whom God made this covenant. But in making it with Abraham, he has in mind the fulfillment which will be in Christ. So Matthew points to Jesus as the promised seed of Abraham. That's his point. Now look at the Davidic covenant of promise. 2 Samuel 7, 11 through 16. And Yahweh declares to you that Yahweh will build a house for you. This is God speaking through the Nathan the prophet to David. When your days are full and you lie down with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring after you who will go out from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. That is the Davidic covenant and God's promise to David. But notice Acts chapter 2, verses 29 through 36, where Peter gives the inspired understanding of this prophecy on the day of Pentecost even. He says, Brothers, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He's both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing this in advance, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not left in Hades, and his flesh did not experience decay. God has resurrected this Jesus. We're all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucify, both Lord and Messiah. Now, Peter's point in his sermon on Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus' resurrection and 10 days after his ascension back into heaven, is that Jesus is the promised son of David, who is the king of the kingdom of God. So Jesus is David's greater son both a descendant of David and, because he even existed before David, 
He is David's greater son. So Matthew establishes for us Jesus' credentials as the Messiah, the promised son of the covenant God made with Abraham, and the son whom God promised to David. He is in his person and his work the fulfillment of these two fundamental foundational covenants in Scripture. This is the reason that the title Son of David occurs more frequently in Matthew than in any of the other gospel narratives. It has been observed that Matthew calls Jesus the Son of David in his opening sentence and follows it up with a genealogy that prove it. And then he alludes to this title at least twice more in the infancy narrative and records the title as related to Jesus during his ministry seven times in the mouths of others on five separate occasions. He brings his claim to a climax in Matthew 22:41 and following in the assertion that Jesus is King, David's greater son, and David's Lord. Paul tells how important Jesus' identity is to the gospel in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. He writes, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, or Messiah, Jesus, our Lord. But Matthew also brings Moses and the covenant God made with Israel at Mount Sinai into his gospel presentation. He does this in the summary sermon we call the Sermon on the Mount, beginning in Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. As Jesus explains the depths of the law expressed in some of the ten words, that is to say the ten commandments, he prefaces each exposition with these words. You have heard it said, followed by a law quotation, and then he follows up with the words, but I tell you. Thus, when he says, I have come not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it, he means that he keeps it completely and perfectly, and thus brings it to its culmination, to its fulfillment. In truth, he is the new lawgiver, a greater than Moses, because Moses and all the prophets spoke of and pointed to him. We must learn to read the scriptures and to interpret the word of God Christiocentrically. It all centers around Jesus Christ. That is the central point. Nothing else, no one else. We thus observe that Matthew tells the story of Jesus as a fulfiller of God's covenants to Abraham, with an addition some 330 years later of the law covenant to Moses and and Israel, and then later the covenant to David. Thus three great covenants in the Old Old Testament, the First Testament, Matthew says are fulfilled in Jesus the Christ. He is the fulfillment of the covenant to Abraham. He is a fulfillment of the covenant God made with Israel and with Moses, and God has fulfilled the covenant to David in Jesus Christ, his unique son, 
and the king of the kingdom of God. When we turn to the gospel presented by Mark, he too begins with God's prior revelation to the prophets, to Isaiah and to Malachi with a startling claim. And we don't really catch this claim when we read Mark in our English translations. And that's because we we substitute Lord instead of the personal name of God. But listen to the beginning of Mark's gospel. This is his words. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, if you go back to the prophet Isaiah and the prophets Malachi, where these words come from, you'll find that in place of this word Lord is the personal covenant name of God, Yahweh. So here's what he's saying. God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah. He says, Behold, I, that is God, send my messenger before your face, before the face of Israel, who will prepare your way. My messenger preparing the way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. We know this to be John the Baptist. Prepare the way of Yahweh. Make his path straight. So, To understand the full implication then of what Mark wrote, we need to turn and read Isaiah 40, verse 3, and Malachi 3, verse 1. This is what they say. A voice is calling in the wilderness. Clear the way of Yahweh. Make a highway smooth in the desert for our God. The Lexham English Bible. Look, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, And the Lord whom you are seeking will come suddenly to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you are taking pleasure. Look, he's about to come, says Yahweh of hosts. Mark makes a bold assertion that Jesus is the unique son of God. The messenger is identified as John the baptizer who prepares the way for the coming of the messenger of the covenant, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Mary. God says he will prepare for my coming. Thus the one who comes is Yahweh himself in the person of the Son. There are two sections discernible in Mark's gospel. Chapters 1 through 8, verse 30, Jesus is shown to be the mighty Messiah and the Son of God. And the second section opens in Mark 8, 31 and shows us the suffering servant of the Lord is prophesied by Isaiah, who redeems people through his sacrificial death. Mark 10, 45, perhaps is the key verse of this gospel. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So these two gospel writers, Matthew and Mark, began the story of Jesus from two different but related angles. Yet their overall goal is the same, to present Jesus to Jew and Gentile as the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies of the coming deliverer and savior of God's people everywhere. Here's my question 
a question for you. Have you received Jesus as your Savior and Lord? When you read the Gospels, do you understand that what he did, he came to do on behalf of those who trust in him? Look to Jesus. In the future, we'll look at how Luke and John begin their Gospel accounts. This has been Wayne Conrad with Bible Insights.